Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Dasha Robinson. Scott Tobias. And behind the boards is Genevieve Kosky. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, while no films exist in a vacuum, some films do take place in a vacuum. We're going to look at two such films, and if we make it back alive, discuss them. Tasha, what do we have lined up? Ridley Scott's space horror movie Alien arrived in theaters in May of 1979, and it's inspired a wide array of sequels, prequels, spinoffs, and knockoffs, including the new Life, which has come in for some pointed alien comparisons. But for this episode, we're going back to the source, to the first film that reminded viewers that in space, no one could hear them scream. Alien arrived as part of a wave of demand for all things science fiction, started by the twin successes of Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What type of science fiction films mattered less than the genre? Hence everything from The Cat from Outer Space to a remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers to the sublimely silly Star Wars ripoff Star Crash making their way to theaters. Alien arrived as a viable hybrid, marrying hard science fiction trappings to an old-fashioned monster-in-the-dark horror movie. The new movie Life, directed by Daniel Espinoza, attempts a similar marriage, throwing in some of the cutting-edge cinematography and zero-gravity-simulating wire work recently seen in Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity. Keith, do the Life characters have any easier time of it than the unfortunate crew of Aliens in Nostromo? You'll have to keep listening to find out. Spoiler alert, not really. Please join us after the break. Some of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. What? Mother's interrupted the course of our journey. What? Yeah. She's programmed to do that should certain conditions arise. They have. Like what? Seems she has intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. She got us up to check it out. A transmission? Out here? Yeah. What kind of a transmission? Acoustical beacon that uh, repeats at intervals of 12 seconds. SOS. I don't know. Human. Unknown. So what? <laughs> we are obligated on the section. I hate to bring this up, but uh, this is a commercial ship, not a rescue ship. Right. <laughs> it's not my contract to do this kind of duty. And what about the money? If you want to give me some money to do, I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, Transworker. Let's go over the bonus situation. We have never talked about the bonus I'm situation. Sorry, can I say something? Let's talk about the bonus situation. There is a clause in the contract which specifically states any systematized transmission indicating a possible intelligent origin must be investigated. I don't want to hear it. We don't know that's intelligent. I want to go home and party. Parker, will you just listen to the man? On penalty of total forfeiture of shares. Money. Consider for a moment the first scenes of Alien. After a moody opening credit sequence that slowly reveals the film's title, we watch as the crew of the Nostromo wakes up from a period in hypersleep. 
After coming to and shaking off the effects of artificial hibernation, they're mostly annoyed. Instead of being close to home, they discover they're way off course, having been summoned by a distress signal to an unknown planet. In short, it's a bummer. Their long, tedious trip through this cosmos is going to take that much longer and involve that much more busy work. Even before the killing starts, nobody on the Nostromo is having much fun. Space travel, in other words, kind of sucks. That Alien begins with the tension already at a low simmer is just one of its many brilliant touches. The crew bickers over bonuses and generally behaves like reality show contestants who've been informed they're going to have to stick together for at least another season. Everybody here is just trying to make a buck doing their jobs. Well, almost everybody. Well, certainly the eponymous alien that does the killing, it's corporate greed that signs a death notice for the crew. They end up playing host to an ill-tempered, acid-blooded guest because the company they work for values the discovery of a new life form over its employees' lives. Those cynical undertones bear the stamp of Dan O'Bannon, who co-wrote the original script with Ronald Shusitz, drawing from ideas that O'Bannon had tossed around after scripting John Carpenter's debut film, Dark Star, a black comedy that took a similarly jaundiced view of galactic travel. And while Ridley Scott, who made Alien as his second feature, rightfully deserves a lot of credit for its success, it's a film where the removal of one creative contributor would have changed everything. Running with the idea of dropping a terrifying alien into a dull, oppressive environment, O'Bannon picked up key collaborators as he drifted into and out of Alejandro Jodorowsky's failed adaptation of Dune. It's there he met artists like Chris Foss, Mobius, and H.R. Giger, the latter most designing the film's unforgettable villain. The oozing, toothy, preopic design does a lot of the thematic heavy lifting for the film and helps drive the horror home. Because even in the dreary, sterile world of the ship, the reddened tooth and claw elements of nature find a way to introduce chaos. The dull corridors and living quarters are suddenly host to a creature made of dangerous and unabashedly sexual components, driven by the single-minded desire to survive and reproduce. In the end, no quarantine procedure can keep the horrors of the universe at a safe remove. What's it got down his throat? I would suggest it's feeding him oxygen. Paralyzes him, puts him in a coma. And keeps him alive. Now, what the hell is that? Oh, we gotta get it off him. Just a minute, just a minute. Let's not be too hasty. We don't know anything about it. Now, we're assuming it's feeding him oxygen. If we remove it, it could kill him. I won't even take that chance. Just cut it off and uh, You take the responsibility. Yes, yes, I'll just take the responsibility. Get him out of it. So, guys, Alien. Here's the deal. I see this movie. This is a movie I've, I've rewatched frequently. We a lot of us saw it together last year in the theater, which was which was awesome. And every time it scares me. Like I know exactly what's going to happen in every moment of this film, and yet every time it gets me. I, I think maybe this time Harry Dean Stanton, you know, will will look the other way or something and and, and safely get away. And he never does. But no. why, why is does this, anyone else have the same effect on anybody else? And 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 uh, if so, why? Yeah, I mean that specific scene with Harry Dean Stanton gets me every time, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is just related to the general design of the film itself which is you know the alien birth doesn't happen until an hour into the movie mm-hmm. then it's maybe another 15 minutes or so until they start patrolling around and in that time Ridley Scott has already built anticipation and all this sort of unrelieved dread and tension John Hurt's character is dead at this point but no one else uh, and the alien is now sort of roaming free in the ship for the first time uh, so that's one reason and then two the sequence goes on for a really long time, which is very much in the patient spirit of the film. I think we get two jump scares with the cat before the creature even appears. Uh, and when it does, it's this immense 
fully grown thing uh you know much much scarier than the little spermy thing that emerges from mm-hmm. uh, john hurt's stomach and so there's the, that shock and surprise as well so uh, i think both of those things i mean that specific sequence but i think there's another scare and i can't really recall it that's just a straight up jump scare with the alien later in the in the film that, that tom scared in the in the air duct yep yeah. tom scared the air duct it was one of those things where my heart was like somewhere in my like <laughs> brain or like i got a headache from being from being shocked <laughs> that that hard by it um so uh yeah it's it, this movie definitely works yeah i've never had that keith i mean i th- this movie is such a model for for this the horror story where everybody gets picked off one by one so i expect everybody to get picked off one by one like there's never a moment moment where I think one of them is going to make the right decision and one of them is going to survive. And part of that is because this film is just so beautifully structured around all of like the many turning points where they're offered a choice and they pick the wrong one consistently every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment where uh, I think it's Yafet Kato says uh, we should just put John Hurt back into the freezer and he gets overruled on that. There's a moment where Weaver goes to Scarrett and says we shouldn't trust Holm. There's something wrong with him. Scarrett blows her off. There's there's a moment where uh, they're all just going to go back into the freezers and everything's going to be fine. And uh, Hurt says, no, but I got to go get something to eat first. There's a moment where Weaver says, we, we shouldn't take off until the cameras are fixed. Like that's going to come back to bite us in the end. And she gets overruled on that one just over and over and over throughout the film. There are all of these opportunities where you see a branch and if they would picked the other branch, this whole story would have been hugely different. I never thought about it that way, but it's kind of like that Vim Vendor's film, Wrong Move, where you spend a whole movie wondering, <laughs> why, why is it called Wrong Move? And you think about it, you realize at every possible point, the, the, the protagonist could have made a decision, he made the wrong they decision. The wrong you know? It's uh, just, I, it's this is such a beautiful movie of bad decision making leading to terrible things for me. And it's so beautiful in that way that I'm never surprised by their terrible, terrible deaths because they, they pick them at every opportunity. And I just, I love that so much. I love the way this film is constructed. But I do think that scene with uh, Harry Dean Stanton in particular, it always comes as a surprise to me when it happens. Because as Scott says, it, it stretches out so beautifully. Mm-hmm. That moment where he's like looking up into the dripping water and just letting it run down his face. That's right. You can feel so many moments through that, like in a modern horror film where it would have been cut off by him getting killed. Yeah. And the pacing of it is so unlike a modern horror film. You can you can feel just over and over, oh, here's where it comes. And then it just kind of languorously stretches out. It's a beautiful sequence. And it's probably maybe your eighth time through that you think, why is there a big dripping thing in the middle of a spaceship? (laughs) That too. Um, That also does not surprise me because Ridley Scott. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Ridley Scott's favorite thing in the world is stuff hanging in the air, Mm. particulate matter. Particulate matter. Watch watch any of his movies and the air is full of of dust or mist or blowing leaves or blowing smoke or blowing something. Like how anybody breathes in a Ridley Scott movie, (laughs) I don't know. A lot of people with hate fever would have an issue with this but The movie also has, that scene also has, I think, the quintessential depiction of what a cat is. In any given moment, which yeah. is when the cat watches Harry Dean Stanton get killed, like, and and like these cats seem to register, is it going to kill me? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. Yep. We well, get that nice cat reaction shot too. Uh, yeah. With, with the alien kind of setting that up, but uh, if I remember the notes on that correctly, they actually like cornered that cat and then brought in a big dog and just kind of pushed the dog at the cat to get that <laughs> oh, reaction. It's, poor cat. it's not great. I mean, oh. fil- filming with animals in 1979 is slightly different than uh, than these days. Maybe not Sam Peckinpah bad, but not great. Yeah. Know, but. but that cat is a part of film history now. 
Yeah, right? it didn't, didn't it's been immortalized. Keith, you were wondering on social media whatever became of uh, Jonesy. Yeah, like because in Alien jo- sequels. Jones is Jones makes an appearance in the Aliens, but then is left behind. Hey guys, <laughs> I have bad news about Jonesy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have bad news about Jonesy. I okay. don't think Jonesy's alive anymore. Well, or hasn't been born yet, really, when you think about it. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> is this a nine lives kind of thing or a, a vast circle of life? No, I'm just saying well, the, I'm, the character has not I, I'm just born. saying the cat, the cat that played Jones. The cat that played Jones most likely is not a, not a, not a real. Yeah. I mean, by that yeah. logic, Sigourney Weaver hasn't been born yet either. So true. We, we get really cosmic at this point. Yeah. Aren't we talking about people dying rather than people being born? That's true. We should talk about the lead up to it because you're right. That slow boil is kind of – it begins like capturing the drudgery of space travel, which mm-hmm. is one thing I love about this movie, just how bored all these people are. <laughs> There's certain camaraderie among them they don't outright hate each other uh or at least they recognize that if hating each other is not a good tactical maneuver if they're going to survive this but uh these are not people who are going to going to go off and have a drink once in a strong you don't you know see i I don't agree with that i think there's a a lot of like chemistry between everyone i think i think sigourney weaver and tom scare's character have a thing sure well that's me not not stanton and and yafat kono I oh, mean, yeah, they have pals. they they're have pals. a relationship yeah. because they work together. That's true. These people are all coworkers. Mm-hmm. You know, there are all of these little threads going between them, just like in a real office. You know, uh, the two that work together and have the same job and are both stuck with half shares, like each other, mm-hmm. better than some of the others, like uh, like each other. But yeah, uh, Weaver and Scarrett's like sexual history was actually a part of uh, under an earlier draft of the script. Was it explicit in the in the? Or... Yeah, it was explicit. It seems uh, I like that it's sort of like it's there if you're looking for it, but mm-hmm. it, but it's just kind of all in the eyes. I'm telling you, that that was one collaborator that was not mentioned among the long list of collaborators that brought Alien to Life is Walter Hill, um, who was was a longtime producer of the series and who, of course, was known for doing that very thing, taking scripts and just removing everything until it became, you know, as as bare bones as possible. Yeah, the script went through a lot of drafts, and the one big addition— that Hill and fellow producer David Geiler brought in was the the Ash subplot. Mm-hmm. Ian Holmes, we'll get to that. But yeah, if you want to look up, there's a bunch of drafts of the script, but the Walter Hill's draft is like its own kind of like beautiful spare poetry. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it is stripped to the bone. It's an, it's an and that was the, And that was the period at which, you know, Walter Hill was at his absolute peak. You know, that's prime time. Like, I don't, I, I would put hit that period in his career up with, you know, up with all the other 70s masters, your Coppola's, your Scorsese's, uh, your et cetera's. This is a great group of people. Coming yep. together to make this movie, and it shows. Uh, one thing I will say too about the beginning of the film, yeah, we're going to talk about how Alien influenced life. I think you could say that 2001 had a pretty heavy influence on Alien, oh, yeah. um, in a, a lot of different ways. I mean, just you know, just, just the patience and the you know the pace of it is is very similar. That the focus on composition and the formal qualities of Alien are so strong. You know, you get a really good sense of the ship, and it, it doesn't have horror movie or even a genre movie kind of pace to it there's some it's elevated in a way that reminded me so much of the kubrick and just the downtime of space travel as well Mm -hmm. that's in there yeah people dying in alien never surprises me um the amount of time it takes to get to people dying in alien always surprises me really pleasantly because i you know when i think about alien i think about uh people walking around in these dripping corridors and all of the action sequences you know where they're chasing the acid through the the corridors or where they're you know running from their lives or all of the business at the end with ripley and the alien i, I always forget how beautiful that scene is at the beginning when they're first waking 
wake up and it's like John Hurt coming out of his his mm-hmm. pod is like a flower unfolding. Like that first arm gesture that he mm-hmm. makes, it's balletic. And, and then and, and the dissolve, the dissolve, or this juxtaposition. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite things in the whole movie is when he's stretching out and then you get, you know, this um, dissolve, I guess, of, mm-hmm. of him continuing to stretch. And it's just to spend that amount of time on that waking up process. It's, it's a really interesting choice and, and kind of sets this movie apart. I just got to say it. Ridley Scott, pretty good director. Pretty good director. Not always. I mean, know. this is his best but, movie in my opinion, but. Uh, best movie. This is Blade Runner. It is. I know. It's better than Blade This one's for me. This, this is better the, than For me, this is better than Blade Runner. Yeah. This is mm. one of the counselor. Mm. Uh, there's a lot going on in Blade Runner that's, <laughs> you laugh. that's really great. I like, I like, I like the counselor too. No, I, I, I like the counselor too. I, I think the lows in Blade Runner are lower than. If, are there any lows no, here? No I, lows. The, Alien is, as Low far three. as I'm concerned, is pretty much a perfect movie. Yep, I'm, I'm with you, but I think Blade Runner is kind of a perfect movie too. Really? Yeah. All right. Before we get sidetracked on that, can we just go back to how beautiful that sequence is? <laughs> because yeah, my I, God, I, I did, I did love that sequence. There's just something so like so gauzy about it. Like they're they're coming out of these like we presume chemically induced sleeps, mm-hmm. and without anybody saying. Boy, this sure—it sure does take us a long time to wake up from these chemically induced sleeps. You can feel it. You can feel it in the way they move. You can feel it in just Hurt's face, where he sits up and his eyes still aren't open, and he's not awake. He's like a baby mouse. Well, and also you—you you get to admire the architecture of those little pods. I mean, you—you you mm-hmm. talked about it, it being like a flower. That it is that kind of flower shape, and you—it it starts the scene starts in the in the dark, and then it, the light comes on it, and there's there's I guess a blooming that happens. So I guess maybe all that is deliberately evocative of a, of a flower. But um, that's that's cinema. There's people. also just something amazing about the contrast between there's that space and the med bay where everything is white. There's the uh, strange little pod that Dallas goes and has his communion with mother in. Mm-hmm. And these are very 2001 spaces. You know, they're, yeah. they're glowing and white and pure and pristine and magical. And they feel like things that were actually in 2001 and then you contrast that with the other half of the film where everything is is black and high contrast and and drippy and uh, textured you know the alien alien ship stuff is all textured like bone the human ship is all textured like raw metal but you go back and forth between these pure white spaces and these these dingy drippy oppressive black spaces mm-hmm. all within the same ship over and over and it, it's so disconcerting yeah and of course we didn't even mention you mentioned that little pod with mother. Of course, we were talking about 2001. That's like the most obvious thing, right? <laughs> of of having this ornery, rebellious uh, operating system on board that's sort of d- defying uh, the pitiful humans who are trying to control it. Yeah, and this one gets a flesh of sorts in form of Ash, played by Ian Holm, mm-hmm. who's a, a stealth robot. That, I think that character is really scary. I think that I love, the, the I love attack that on yeah. Yeah, the attack fight sequence between he and, and Sigourney Weaver is just so brutal and. The violence done to his robot body, that scene is so uncanny. You know, there's, we'll get to this, but maybe with a lot of sexual elements, we basically seems to start spurting seminal fluid when they knock his head off, you know? I mean, it's really upsetting, <laughs> that, yeah. that moment. Even uh, just that, that contrast, like when he's first hit... And you go, you go back and forth between him with just the little dribble of milky fluid on his head, mm-hmm. and her with the little dribble of red blood coming out of her nose. Right, and it's just such a, a like a brutal contrast, you know. As you're just you're given a moment to sit with the fact that oh, he's not human. Yeah, what a stunning reveal that is! What a beautiful, subtle, shocking reveal that is, and also one that you're both unprepared for, and that makes absolute sense based on the way he's been behaving the entire time. He's human enough to pass, and human mm-hmm. enough to be kind of an a hole. 
hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even to his dying breath. Uh, yeah. Kind of I think, but I think he's kind of like a scientist a-hole, right? Right. That said, this is one of those movies that it's a shocking and incredible reveal the first time you see it. And then every subsequent time you're like, how could I not have realized that? Mm. Every time something shocking happens, the camera finds him in isolation watching everybody else like a lizard with mm-hmm. like no facial expression and no response except how am I going to manipulate this situation? That's it, a really good point because I, I had the same thought of just like – when we got to the reveal, I thought, "Oh yeah, they hadn't this. We didn't know this yet <laughs> that he was that he was an android." You know, the Ash character reinforces this idea of corporate and government, you know, agendas being placed above the lives of ordinary people. Which I think you said Dan O'Bannon was a little bit sketchy on this subplot. Yeah, apparently on the Ash thing, that was not was not was not. But but because I mean, the film is already getting into workers' rights a, a little bit, and, sure. and and you know, these sort of union workers who are being kicked around maybe this was a bridge too far maybe this was too much but to me it it reinforces those ideas uh, really effectively and of course aliens the sequel would go back to that as well both quite effectively well, I mean, the aliens stories, the like the larger universe, the comic books and such has just returned over and over and over to that idea mm-hmm. until it's worn really thin. And it kind of it, it takes a little reminding that it was new and fresh and ugly here mm-hmm. because I my my biggest problem, like there's so much potential for stories like within this universe. And so many aliens related stories have just kind of returned to the idea of the corporation still wants an alien, no matter how many times. <laughs> That's wrong. Corporations yeah. still wants an alien to weaponize. They still don't care about their people. They're still willing to kill them all off over and over and over again. <laughs> it gets a little tiresome. Yeah. yeah. Though, though I, I, I do credit the sequel for um, being able to repeat that and make it one of the better elements of that movie. So. I want to get into the sequels at some point, but let's talk. Let's focus on one of the characters here, which is which is Ripley, who's become. Ooh. Uh, Ripley. Mm-hmm. Oh, played, she's a major played character? played by Sigourney Weaver. Oh, okay. Making this character a woman was apparently a late, later addition uh, to the film. And she's kind of become the, uh, I, a word I don't like because overused, but the iconic tough heroine. Um, <laughs> looking at Genevieve and staying away from strong female characters. <laughs> as I say this, but how much difference does this make? And, and what do you see as, as her legacy? What did Ripley give us? I mean, it's what she gave us was tremendous. Like she, she really was the first kind of kick-ass female hero in science fiction film. What people remember is aliens and her with the loader and, you know, get away from her. But coming back to this movie, there's so much that happens in this movie where she stands up to the men around her over and over and over. And she's just she's overruled and discarded. And it's this. She's right. <laughs> yeah, well, she is. She is consistently right. But the dynamic there would be so different if she was another dude. I think they would have had to make her, you know, four foot two or something to show what the power imbalance is of being the person who is always right and is always dismissed and told to shut up and, and overlooked. <laughs> and, Rick and wouldn't, this, wouldn't this have been, I mean, it would have been Spaceballs, yeah. basically. Yeah, or right, Ghostbusters. I was thinking uh, Ghostbusters, but go ahead. She is not afraid to like look people that she knows and, and has worked with in the eye and tell them, you know, you're not getting back on the ship. Yeah, you're probably, it's possible that all three of you are going to die, but I'm willing to make that call. And then she has to live with the, that decision when Ian Holm overrules her and just lets her back, lets them back on the ship. I mean, <laughs> can, can you imagine? Yeah. Like, can you imagine looking at one of us and saying, all right, I'm, I'm just going to make a decision that is going to kill you. And then on top of that, just immediately having it turned around on you, like, no, 
that's not going to happen. And now we have to continue to sit here and do this podcast, by the way. <laughs> it's just, it's an amazing dynamic. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I really like about Ripley in this movie is how she doesn't emerge as the main character until a little bit later in the film, until I guess others have died off and she's in command. I mean, the first time we do really get a strong sense of her is that scene where she refuses to let her fellow travelers back on board due to quarantine procedures. And that's an extremely difficult decision to to have to make with real people's lives on the line and obviously a consequential one you know and i think as ripley's authority grows ridley scott starts shooting her more from low angles to kind of emphasize her height and her strength and we start to see her as as a sort of a legitimate power match i guess for the alien which is growing in a more literal sense am i wrong am i wrong to notice changes in the way She's filmed. Yeah, I think that's it. Or maybe I'm just thinking of the the you know the climax of the film, which is all low angle, and she's in skivvies and whatever. <laughs> and the emphasis is so much on her height and her body and strength and everything like that. But. Well, that's also there in the writing. I mean, if you follow the script early on, she's just kind of like one of a number of people. Like she doesn't really distinguish herself a whole lot early on. Um, she kind of makes jokes with the crew. She kind of fades into the background a little. And more and more as the film goes on, she's put front and center. She's put front and center in the scene where they're taking off from the the planet even. Um, she's front and center in the scene where they're trying to figure out, you know, how to go through the... Well, actually, even before that, when she comes down to check up on Kato and Stanton, you know, with their repairs, like more and more the script kind of pushes her to the front and has her making decisions, even decisions that have nothing to do with the alien, decisions that have nothing to do with survival. She's just put in this very leadership position. And uh, I, you could say the same for Diafat Kato. It wasn't until I was uh, doing a week with the Alien Minute podcast that I really started thinking about the fact that, like, in 1979, having a black guy on the ship who is the boss of a white dude and who also bosses Ian Holm around, like, one of the early things you see him do is just walk in a room like, you're in my chair and kind of shove Ian Holm off of his chair. All of that was kind of radical for a, a 1979 movie. And having black people in space in a 1979 movie was also just, you know, it wasn't how people thought of science fiction. I mean, point me to the black people in uh, Star Wars. Yeah, well, or most science fiction features of the day. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, was that Richard Pryor that had a joke about Logan's run about how the white people didn't see any black people in the future? I think uh, there was something like that. <laughs> you know, Star Trek had already happened and that had kind of given people the idea that, that maybe the future would be both gender diverse and culturally diverse and ethnically diverse. So like this movie didn't invent it, but it's still, it was a very unusual thing to see at the time. And he didn't die right away. He's like third to last. To die. <laughs> it's or true. second to last. You know what else uh, Sigourney Weaver in this movie gives us, though, is she wasn't the first uh, horror movie final girl, but she was kind of the one that codified the idea. I think it's probably the, like the one-two hit of uh, Halloween and this that, like, I don't know how much this was influenced by Halloween. I don't know what their relationship was in terms of when they were actually being shot. But I suspect that both of these movies becoming so iconic in terms of the what I've always called the cast attrition thriller <laughs> uh, possibly just kind of locked it into people's brains but you know i almost don't i guess you would you would classify this as a horror film but i i just don't think of it for some reason when i think about horror films of the era i always think i, I do think about halloween and then the, the slasher films that followed but i just i don't put alien on that continuum uh maybe because the sci-fi elements are you know equally strong but anyway that's my own little categorical brain uh i want to talk about sex 
Oh, it's it's mm. it's uh it's not really the text of this movie at all. There's there's no sex in the movie, but sex is so all over the subtext of this movie. I mean, I don't know if it's there without Giger's design. Giger is this strange Swiss artist who came out of the psychedelic movement, the darker uh, corners of the psychedelic movement of the 60s, and started drawing these creatures that are like half machine, half flesh, and like mostly genital looking. And mm-hmm. it's so odd that something this particular to this one person's obsessive vision would be in a major film but here it is and it's terrifying and it brings all this like sort of uncomfortable freudian uh imagery into it that is that feeling there without this design of the alien i mean o'bannon has been very clear about the fact that working on hodorowsky's dune and seeing geeker's works was what inspired alien and once he started thinking in terms of how a story about like an alien that looked like a giant phallus would play out mm-hmm. he came up with the idea i mean this this film is very expressly built around and these are O'Bannon's words, built around the horror uh, for men of oral rape and subsequently pregnancy. Uh, The whole imagery of the alien's biological function is built around what is the worst thing I could do to a man? I could rape him and make him pregnant. So, yeah, I mean, sex is all over this thing. And then, you know, you get things like the weird kind of vulval openings that they go into when they're entering the ship. And the alien itself, like a lot of Giger's alien artwork, it's just a giant phallic head with a a separate phallus inside of it that shoots out. But then the bodies of these aliens are often just these like lean, muscular, very sexual, like dancer kind of bodies. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the original concept art, they also had breasts, like really prominent, naked, humanoid breasts. So there's this weird ongoing pull between things that are meant to attract you and revolt you. And like, that's what Giger's work is. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It's not here, though. (laughs) Probably probably not. Though though I will admit, I mean, in terms of your saying about elements of of attraction and repulsion, it's, you know, a deeply confusing film on a a lot of those fronts. But maybe that's some interpretive problem that I'm having. No, but I think it's more, you know, if you look for a direct analogy here, as this is a movie about sex as so-and-so, as, you know, a one-for-one point for point metaphor is you're not going to find it but just sort of this uncomfortable sexual undertones to the whole thing i think that's part of what makes it work i mean this movie starts with a bunch of people who are nearly naked waking up together and it ends with a woman stripping down to her underwear there's just like sexual tension and sexual feeling throughout it and yeah you're certainly not wrong about ian holm being covered in seminal fluid Mm -hmm. when he's torn apart and everything just kind of oozes and drips yeah yeah it's it's all it's a very moist film (laughs) boy moist Moist is a tough one (laughs) there's also just there's sexual tension between weaver and scarrett there's a moment where kato makes a pretty leering joke at veronica cartwright about how you know they're sitting around the the dinner table and he's like this isn't what i'd like to be eating Mm -hmm. and she kind of squirms and giggles and blushes and kind of does the you know oh you i hate this but i like it kind of thing (laughs) i mean you've got a bunch of people who know each other well in very close quarters together it's that's like being in the military or being in a dorm any other place where you've got a mixed gender group in very tight company those jokes are going to happen we we touched on it earlier i want to return a little bit to ash the android character played by ian holm it's a different movie without it i just on the most basic level level it gives the crew a, a traitor in their ranks which is a terrifying thing to have when you're up against this kind of threat but beyond that you get this sort of embodiment of 
cool corporate logic. I mean, the chilling line of of, of him saying, I, "I admire its purity," referring to the <laughs> alien. It's 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 quite the character. What was your special order? You read it. I thought it was clear. What was it? Bring back life form. Priority one. All other priorities rescinded. Damn company. What about our lives, you son of a... I repeat, all other priorities are ascended. How do we kill it, Ash? There's gotta be a way of killing it. How? How do we do it? You can't. Bullshit. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. It's structural. Perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. A survivor. And I'm clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. I cannot imagine the drafts of the movie without him in it, because there are two villains here. There's the faceless corporation, which never confronts three, I guess. There's the faceless corporation, which is far away and, you know, only influences the the story like via remote. There's the alien, which is, uh, you know, an implacable monster with no literally with no face. And there's mother which also has no face. Ian Holm is the villain in this movie that you can talk to, you know, that they can pour out all of their frustrations and anger on. And it's also the thing with the voice that tells them exactly how much to be afraid. And this movie without him, even leaving aside like all of the important narrative things he does, like letting them into the ship and fighting Ripley and giving yeah. them information. He's, a, he's, a, he's also, yeah, coll- he's a collaborator and an enabler mm-hmm. at the same time. He's, he's working for the company. He's bringing the alien on board and protecting it over the humans on the ship and so uh yeah it definitely adds that element of what they don't need and you know, we of course we never really talked about the fact that this is not the ship is not all that well equipped for uh hostels hmm. it is they they don't have a lot that they can use to combat this one alien you know of course the sequel stepped it up by bringing up space marines to bear on many many aliens but just having this one alien in the ship you know that's there to for mineral ore they don't have the resources to stop it and they're also they're perpetually fighting the previous version of the alien you know it's it's really kind of not until not until ripley confronts it in the shuttle that she's actually facing what it is instead of what they think it was that it's already changed from i mean the other kind of thing that's going on with ash is he's the one with the information like he always seems to even though there's no way he could know like what the alien is becoming what's it, what it's turning into like mm-hmm. he always has a little more information than they do cuz he's applying science to the matter and then concealing what he learns that's a good point. I mean, nobody really knows what the alien look, looks like until it, you know kills kills them. <laughs> I mean, they don't have they don't have who has an idea until they actually confront the the alien in this thing. Oh man, and you just you have that sequence with you know all of so much of this is iconic at this point. You know the face huggers, the the eggs opening up, the horror of what these aliens become. You start off with a uh, you know poor John Hurt candling the egg basically and and seeing that it's like putting a light up to it so it's transparent and just like oh my gosh there's something alive in here let's stick our face really close to it yeah because it doesn't know any damn better 
No, no, no. But we we certainly do. Having well seen many horror films, but also uh, the sequels. That uh, it's probably not a great idea. Speaking of sequels, so does this? You know, there's a lot of films that sequels retroactively change how you how you look at them. Uh, there's this films that a lot of sequels and spinoffs and one prequel with another on the way or quasi prequel or whatever. Uh, does that change the way you look at this movie at all? I mean, it, it ends up enhancing my appreciation for it. I mean, Alien stands apart and stands alone in the series because I don't think it could be done again. James Cameron did a very smart thing by turning the franchise from a horror series to an action series. But once you make that change, you can't really go back. It's like, oh, let's go back to a minimalist approach where there's only one alien and they don't have anything to combat it with. I mean, you can't really do that. Well, so you have to keep... they sort of tried to with Alien to keep... 3. That's true. Well, I mean, but but I will say this. Like, like I feel like I I should revisit them at some point, but I, I love The Matrix. The Matrix sequels don't do a lot for me. And that's a case where maybe they sort of diminish my appreciation of the original a little bit. But with each one of these, like talking about the original films, the original films in the series, adding on Prometheus onto that makes it a little little more problematic. But but they're each such distinct visions. They're each different sorts of movies. They're very strong ideas of what the Alien movie should be from different directors. Prometheus is directed by Ridley Scott. Like I said, that complicates it. But to me, I, I just feel like that that I don't love all of them, but they work together so nicely that one being lesser than the other, contradicting the other, doesn't really interfere with it. I, and I don't count the Aliens versus Predators film because those, those, <laughs> that's, those good. Are, that's good. I never saw the second one. The first one was just dreadful so yeah i think i I think i missed the first one and saw the second one and hated that yeah the sequels were also just made at such long intervals from each other and with such different people and different Mm -hmm. budgets that like the technology was changing so much between these films and one of the things about going back and, and looking at alien like first of all it just it stands apart because of the art of it like this is practically an art film in some ways that moment where uh, Ash first attacks Ripley, you know, grabs her and throws her against the wall. And then the camera just kind of takes the time to make like a long circle around the room and come back to him contemplating what his next moves are while she's lying there. Like that is that's art. It just doesn't feel like an action film. And, you know, Aliens is is a tremendous, tremendous film. But everything about like the pacing and the mentality and the characters and the aims of it is so different. I, like the only thing that is the same is the kind of the design of the aliens and, and Weaver's presence. So that film doesn't really I, I mean, it's it's like apples and oranges. You know, they both have seeds and that's about all you can say. <laughs> so the other movies don't diminish Alien for me because they just they don't factor into it. Like I just I find them forgettable. They're like bad fanfic. And, but the original, you know, still stands no matter what other people do with those ideas. You're you're lumping aliens in with a uh, with bad fanfic? No, 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 no. Those those two films. I mean, right. that's just those are incredible bookends for a series that, you know, for some people went on after that, and for me, maybe not so much. Yeah, well, Alien Three is probably the movie I like least that I've seen the most. Like every few years, <laughs> I'll go back and and like I should give us another chance. David, I like I like David Fincher's other movies, and eh, it just doesn't quite work. And mm-hmm. and uh, I feel like the Alien Resurrection almost works as like kind of a strange like. If you gave a strange, uh, well, kind of is a cult director making a B movie kind of a uh, kind of thing. And Prometheus is to me is just the most beautiful looking movie with the dumbest script. I mean, just the just as as smart as the ideas in this one are. Yeah, everything in that is so much dumber. So also, it's, it's also it's confusing. I mean, there's nothing yeah. confusing about Alien. Alien, no. you're, you're it's so simple. 
It is. It is. Yeah. And you kind of walk away from that movie with a thousand questions and none of them are good questions. They're they're all, why are you so stupid? <laughs> Whereas in this movie, you just you feel so clearly for these people who are trying their absolute best and they're just they're completely outmatched at every step. They're up against the unknown. Well, uh, we face the unknown of, of uh, the rest of this podcast. So why don't we take a, a little break and we'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last two episodes. Our discussion of Kong Skull Island inspired a variety of responses, both to that film and to the original King Kong. Scott, would you care to share one? Sure. Keying off our discussion of the difficult racial history of the Kong films, the Reverend Nick Lannon writes, What did you make of the Western standoff style of shots juxtaposing Samuel Jackson's eyes and nose with Kong's eyes and snout near the end of the film? This is He's talking about Skull Island here. Obviously, it's a traditional quote-unquote gunfighter sequence of shots, but surely it must have deeper meaning than that, given Kong film's long history of racial subtext. Are we meant to think that the characters look alike, that they don't? Are the filmmakers admitting that they know about the racial history and trying to undercut it by making the potential comparison of a black man's face to an ape's face so overt? I didn't know what to make of these shots and was thrown out of the movie by them. Any thoughts? Do I remember that? Yeah. It's, oh, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very memorable toward the end where he's okay. kind of squaring off against him. Um, I don't know. I want to say to give Kong Squad and uh, a credit for too much subtext is, is uh, well, I don't know. I should see this movie again. Maybe. I don't know. I didn't really care for it that much. It's, it's just some smart elements to it and, and I think ultimately kind of a dumb movie, but maybe it knows it. I don't know. I think that shot may have just been, may have been trying to, to just throw the racial history of the series out the window and just have Samuel L. Jackson looking badass staring down a, a giant antagonist. Uh, but maybe I'm being a little naive. I really do think that they were aware of the racial subtext and that's why they made a point of having a variety of different characters of color in a lot of different roles. So there isn't just, and I think I said this in the, the podcast itself, there isn't just the one, you know, black guy versus ape uh, confrontation. For me, that shot wasn't about race at all. That shot was about Samuel L. Jackson's character's just completely unflinching devotion to his insane cause, his belief that somehow winning the, the war against this giant ape represented winning the war that they couldn't win in Vietnam. And the fact that he's willing to single-handedly face this insanely large and terrifying thing while while everything around them is on fire. To me, it was just, it was about the two of them locking eyes, as Nick says, like gunslingers um, and facing each other down without either of them in any way like turning away. I just, I didn't see it as a racial thing at all. I saw it as a, a preparation for like the big confrontation to come. Okay. Well, we have at least one more interesting response to Kong, uh, mainly in the form of a picture that a listener sent of her uh, grandfather, uh, who worked on the original Kong, looking at some of the uh, sets involved, which is really cool. You should uh, go check that out. Meanwhile, we're still fielding new feedback on our episode about Get Out, which, uh, including one from a listener answering Tasha's request to hear from some non-white liberal elites about the movie. I like how we can ask for that and then <laughs> request it, and then it's granted. Uh, it was granted by a listener named Mary. Marian Johnson, who writes in, 
To answer Tasha's call, I can give you my experience watching Get Out as a black woman married to a white liberal elite who stopped making eye contact with me about 10 minutes into the film. (laughs) Watching that movie was both a suffocating and a deeply cathartic experience. My in-laws have made countless comments and overtures ranging from clueless microaggressions to overt racism. It's a no-win situation for me since responding firmly will come across as too aggressive and probably incite nothing but more discomfort while saying nothing and just smiling uncomfortably feels like falling into the sunken place. I can't think of a better expression of how your spirit feels after withstanding well-meaning liberal racism than the sunken place. It's perfect. It's also why I disagree with those of you who said that Lil Rel's comedy was too loose and improvisational compared to with the rest of the movie. The counterpoint to the sunken place is the freedom and looseness you feel when you can code switch because you're talking to another black person who gets it. The movie code switches to something looser because that's how we feel, especially after a racially stressful encounter. Mm, that's me. <laughs> I was the one who made that criticism. And, say, uh, I wouldn't say anything like that. that oh, jeez. <laughs> no, that, that, that's a very good point. I really have no retort to, to that. I think I was trying to... It's such a general complaint that I have about modern comedy that may, maybe I applied it uh, too uh, broadly to get out because the way uh, Marion ex- explains this uh, makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, I do feel relief whenever the movie switches into comedy mode. For me, it feel it, it often feels like switching too far because I, I, like I'm able to breathe again and there's, there's just too much oxygen in my system after having learned how to live without oxygen for 15 minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. But mostly one of my responses to this uh, letter was, uh, your husband stopped making eye contact with you 10 minutes into the film. What are you doing at this film that you're making eye contact? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you not staring in, in panic fixation at the they're married and they still can't, you know, they still lie on each other all the time. Nice. <laughs> During movies. Nice. No, he needs to he needs to step up uh, about the about the family. Uh, he needs to be doing his his job to deal with that cuz that stuff does not fly. <laughs> Maybe she was just like elbowing him like see and like he was just like not looking over. I don't think we're here to provide counseling for their family, Tasha. They need every every family has its own unique dynamics. I think we need to work this out. Yeah, but I I'm fascinated by this letter because uh like I would love to know what kind of conversation they had about it afterward. Yeah. And I'm just I'm fascinated by other people's experience with this movie in general because it's just such a uh, it, it's a movie that cuts straight to the heart of like how you feel about a lot of things and there's so much internally going on with how different people feel about all of the things all of the different things on display here that I, I'm just I'm, I'm fascinated by people's emotional responses to this movie this letter made me so happy um, and I would love to hear from more people about how that movie made them feel good letter we'll talk about get out all year that's fine keep asking that people are going to keep writing it's a rich text well as always we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll look at Life, another movie about space dwellers with contamination issues. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be spending a little time with Calvin, who's not as harmless as his name suggests. <laughs>